Welcome to the Hardware Asylum Podcast Extras. In this episode, we interview a very well-known person in the overclocking community, and you may know him from HardwareBot. I have a special guest on the podcast today, fresh back from CES 2014. He happens to be a very well-known overclocker and a proprietor of an overclocking website. Can you uh, introduce yourself? Uh, hello, everyone. This is Peter. Um, as uh, Dennis already said, I, uh, I work for hwbot.org, and uh, I'm an overclocker, yeah. And I, we just came back from CES. What would be your online name that people might recognize more than your given name? Uh, that would be Massman. Massman. Yes. And according to your inbox, you are the most awesomest guy ever. Yeah, that is exactly what is what the emails say in my inbox. Yeah. Uh, you'll have to search Facebook to find out exactly what he said in that regard, but we'll move on. <laughs> so as hardware enthusiasts, we often test the latest and greatest hardware, and I know that you have some in your lab. What would you say your day is your daily driver? What do you use on a daily basis? That's actually kind of awkward for a, for an hardware enthusiast because my daily driver is a Ultrabook, which I use for um, mainly because it's so portable and so light, yeah. and it, it helps me. Well, it allows me to do everything I wanted to do, so I didn't really need a bulky desktop. <laughs> well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, when I do. Hardware reviews, I have a room dedicated with all my hardware stuff so I can set up a system in about 20 minutes. And when I get done, I save all the tests to my network and I go back to my desktop, which I I don't touch. You know, it's a 980X, but the OS is perfect. Everything is installed. I can just go to the network and I can work. I need a, a stable system to actually work on. Yeah, this is actually the same thing for me. Um Obviously, I used to have a desktop, and I found myself overclocking that same desktop time over time again. Yeah, where it would crash, and then I'd have to repair it, and it would take weeks for my system to get back up. <laughs> Do you mean overclocking is unstable? No, that can't be right. Well, it started out just um, well. Okay, let me let me run you through my desktop fiasco. <laughs> yeah, this should be fun. So. Um, Week one, I would buy my system and I would tell myself I would never, never overclock it. Don't touch it. Let's let's keep it stable in stock because I'm going to need it for the next couple of months. And then week two, obviously, I'd be, okay, wondering maybe I can push this a little, a little bit more performance. It doesn't hurt, right? Yeah. And well, then by week three, I would be interested in, okay, how far I can I push this? I would still keep everything in the case, right? Because, you know, if you take it out of the case, then it becomes... Um, that becomes an overclocking rig. So I told myself, okay, let's keep everything in the case and um, just, okay, see what the highest benchmark result is uh, that I can get out of this system. Well, you need to know what your system is capable of. Exactly. But yeah. that's when it went wrong because um, I would hit a certain limit and I'd be, um, I'd be interested in how, can I push this maybe a little bit more? And then I would take everything out of the case, telling myself that, Okay, if, if I'm done with this, I'm going to put everything back in the case and then everything is going to be back to stock and everything is going to be stable and normal. So the next week, obviously something would have broken down and I'd be hitting myself over the head saying, why did I do this? Why did I do this? And then the cycle would basically repeat after I've repaired the system. Yeah, that's a, a classic overclocker problem, really. I mean, a lot of the, the casual overclockers will just go and 
you know, tweak some memory settings, maybe increase front side bus or multiplier. But when you are really concerned with the best performance and what is actually possible and what you could do and still make the system stable, you have to break a few rules and boundaries. It might also be the competitive aspect of it. Like you see, you get a number or you get a score and you just, you just want to want to have a better score. Yeah. So speaking of scores, are you a gamer at all? Um, not really. I play games once in a while, yeah, but so, not competitively or not intensively. Yeah. So what would you say is your favorite type of game? Like, you know, something on a tablet or a phone or... Um, lately, my the, the games that I usually play are would be like FIFA, for example. Oh. I can entertain myself with FIFA. Oh, cool. So that would be like a console kind of game, right? Yeah, yeah. I used to play on PC mainly, but now I've gotten used to the console way of gaming, and that's entertaining as well. Yeah. I can do racing games on the console, as people of the podcast will know, but first-person shooter is my game of choice, and that's a, a PC-only title for me, at least. Yeah, for me as well. Yeah, I would play Angry Birds as well, but I'm not sure if that's counted as a game. <laughs> it, it counts as entertainment, which okay. is a game. So um, what would you say was the most extreme system that you've ever used on a daily basis? Um, that is a very difficult question. Because my daily systems were never really that high end, um, I never, I never really built systems to be top of the line. I always had um, normal systems, and then I had my hardware components to do the overclocking. So I think at a certain point I had an SLI graphics configuration. So that might have been the most extreme one. And water cooling, yeah, maybe face change, face change, but outside of the case, not inside. Right, but that's not really a daily driver. You might use it for about a month, but those face coolers are pretty loud and obnoxious sometimes. Um, well, I would turn it on as I went back from or came back from school. Maybe um, the most extreme in terms of uh, in terms of, in terms of heating would be my uh, Radeon four thousand eight hundred seventy X two, which would generate so much heat that when I got back from school in the winter, I would go up to my room, turn on my system, and then go back down to eat something. And 15 minutes later, my room was heated. That would be uh, a benefit uh, considering the weather around here right now. True. Yeah. I understand your involvement in the overclocking scene was a little different than what I would say is the normal. Um, so how is it that you got started in actual overclocking? Um, so as a kid, um, my I, was, I would read the computer magazines that my dad had a subscription to. And I got interested in, in PCs in general and wanted to kind of build my own PC. But I had to wait until I was about 13 or 14 years old before I could actually use my own money to build a PC. Yeah, that's actually really early to build, be building your own PC. Um, yeah, I, I guess so. I don't know. Um, I think I was 22 when I built my first system. I mean, that's kind of dating me. I'm a bit older than you are. But, um, you know, my first computer was tandy that my dad brought home that was about your age you know 15 16 okay so our my, my first pc or our first pc I, I would say was a i think a 386 and then we upgraded to an amd k62 at 350 megahertz great processor by the way awesome yeah um and the first pc that i actually built myself was an athlon xp uh 2600 that was uh, Thunderbird? B uh, Barton Core. Oh, Barton. Good times. Um, and I bought an MSI motherboard, and I bought a Keyforce 3 Titanium 200. 
So um, I uh, loaded up a benchmark to see how fast my PC was. And I got a number, and I already knew a little bit what overclocking was. So I tried to increase the number. And then I signed up for a local, uh, at a local forum, and they had these benchmark rankings. So my only purpose was to get up in those rankings. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a bit different. You know, when, uh, when you're trying to be better than your peers, your virtual peers, you may not actually know who they are. You just want to be the guy at the very top of that list. That's, that's a different route from like my look at overclocking where I want to have better performance in a game or better performance in rendering a 3d studio max scene or something like that, you know, 3d animation, you know, just getting a better score than your peers is a little strange. Um, I guess I'm just very competitive as a, uh, from nature. Yeah. So of course the competitive nature in overclocking, as we know, it, you know, it starts out with the air and water. So when do you think was the first time that you went into sub-zero cooling? What was the reason why you did that? Um, obviously you get interested in, in sub-zero overclocking because you see it on forums and you want to, you want to try it out yourself. And I'm not sure when I did my first Sub-Zero session, because then you should also include um, chilled water cooling, right? Right, yeah. I still consider chilled water cooling as water cooling. I mean, I think that's how HWBot also defines it. But Yeah, correct. Um, the, the water could be chilled just because it's outside and it's 10 below outside. Or it could be chilled because it's 20 degrees outside and it's not really that cold. But he used a bigger radiator, you can kind of get the same heat uh, dissipation at that point the the first real extreme overclocking session i did was uh, with dry ice though it was an amd athlon 64 3000 plus venice cpu i think i have one of those um mine was special because it didn't have any cold bug so i, I got it up into up to i think 3.6 gigahertz up from 1.8 mm-hmm. and um at that point there was the second highest cpz validation for that particular cpu wow breaking records right out the bat not not really i was second place and it's still you know one person away whatever true so that was my first experience with dry eyes and then um a couple years later later um my first liquid nitrogen session was actually was actually following a failed session uh, with a friend of mine so we had a, a an intel conroe x6800 and that's it. Chip didn't boot up for some reason, so we decided to uh, use my E six thousand three hundred, which um, coincidentally also overclocked very high. I had the E six thousand three hundred records for a while there. Oh, cool! So the container you used was it one you built, or did you buy it from somebody, or how was that? So the first container I used for the dryers was a custom one, which was uh, actually a, a horrible design. It could not hold any load whatsoever. <laughs> and then for uh, for the liquid nitrogen. We used a Kingpin Dragon F1, the round one, the round tube one. Oh, right. Yeah, the very first one that he did, actually, I think. Yeah, exactly. And that was a great experience. You mentioned that you worked for HWBot, or HardwareBot, as we call it in the United States. When did you actually join the site? I joined in May 2006. And the the reason why I joined is actually a pretty funny story. Um, I think um, in June 2005, uh, Frederick... My boss now, and uh, nicknamed Rich Bastard. Yeah, he um, he built a, uh, a front site for HWBot, and it used to be it used to be known as Imbot, which was a form spider to just gather overclocking results in a dedicated thread and then have the ranking in the first page of that thread. Right, I actually remember that bot. 
Yes. Yeah, believe it or not, I, I knew about the whole hardware bot scene even before I joined. And it was one of those things where anybody that ever overclocked and submitted a score knew that there was this little bot that would come around and try to grab screenshots and scores and stuff and then try to rank them. Mm-hmm. So, so in, in 2005, we, um, well, Frederick launched a website for it. And um, because of this front end, um, you can now see all the scores from around the world on all the forums. And you can actually um, link your uh, account that you make on the website to the accounts that you have on the different forums. So I saw all my scores up there and I sent an email to Frederick saying, can you please pull down my scores? I don't want to have my scores on this website. Okay. He sent me an email saying, well, you know what? You can just sign up for the website and then link all the scores into your account and just have a nice overview. So that's what I did. And then I, I went to um, I went to the global rankings of the benchmarks and I saw a lot of false scores, a lot of uh, incorrect submissions. So I start, started reporting all of them saying this is this is an incorrect score. And um, uh, one of the moderators at that time apparently told Frederick that um, instead of having to deal with all these reported submissions, I should just come on board and join the team so I can fix them all, all by myself. <laughs> so how is it that you knew that they were an invalid score? Um, sometimes the screenshot was incorrect uh, or there was no screenshot attached to it. Oh, right. So it was just an invalid submission. Yeah, it would just be uh, an invalid submission, or for example, the the, the wrong CPU or the wrong hardware was uh, was linked to the score. Hardware Asylum is a worldwide website that does hardware reviews and overclocking and stuff like that, but it garners to the English speaking region, like in the United States. In terms of overclockers registered on HWBot, where does the United States stand in terms of participation? It's um it's the largest overclocking community actually if you look at at uh, look at it from a country's perspective right so like in the European region for instance might be larger than the United States but once you go down to the country level then we have what I think Germany is number two or something like that yeah correct so um I think Europe as a whole is bigger than uh, North America and that mm-hmm. includes Canada then. But um, as a country, the United States is the largest overclocking community, both in just regular participants as in uh, extreme overclockers. Right. And that doesn't actually come across very well when you look at the HWBot site. Um, I can see that we have a lot of U.S. teams and there's a lot of U.S. flags against you know people in there. And some of them are part of teams and then their flag changes and whatnot. So like Team Pure, for instance, has Vince, who is still a U.S.-based overclocker, but he has people from all over the world as part of his team. So the thing that actually really surprises me is that we don't have a lot more U.S.-based overclockers that are leading the rankings. It seems like a lot of the leaders in terms of overclocking are in Europe and, you know, in Russia and China and Japan, you know, in the Asiatic regions. Do you think that that is a response to overclocking being more accepted in those regions, or do you think it's just that Americans are lazy? I don't think Americans are are lazy or anything like that. Um, And I'm not sure if it's related to overclocking being more accepted either. Um, Honestly, I wouldn't be able to answer that question. I don't don't know the reason why the rankings are not dominated by uh, American overclockers. Well, I think that that is a call to arms to any U.S.-based overclocker. We need to uh, kind of pump up the rankings a bit. Um, Sure, yeah. Um, And actually, I think that might be a good question for your uh, audience. 
why they why do they think that American overclockers are not, for example, leading in the Extreme Overclockers League? Yeah, you, that, that's you, a, Extreme Overclockers League is uh, freely available, and you know that's the that's the one where you go sub zero. So that could be LN two or dry ice. And dry ice, as I showed you earlier today, is available at just about any grocery store. And uh, LN two is a little bit harder to get, but you could go sub zero and move into that rank. And it's not like there is none. There's no um, no good uh, American overclockers, even on the not professional level. For example, um, on the Kingston HyperX OC Takeover World Finals, two out of the five finalists were from the U.S. Right, that was Splave and Loud Silence. Correct, yeah. And I believe Loud Silence took second in that competition, right? Uh, third. Third. Um, and then you have uh, uh, Stiponzi was actually at the Gigabyte uh, event as well, and he brought his four uh, Radeon R9 290X cards and broke the Heaven uh, Extreme record. Right, I was there for that. That was pretty impressive. So, and you have Gunslinger as well, for example, who's doing very well in the Pro C League, and then Mike CDM was at the MOA Grand Finals. Right. So it's not like there's no talent in, in the U.S. No, it's just that we, we have some Halo players that actually, not Halo as the game, but we have some really good players in the overclocking community, and then we have a lot of people that are just casually overclocking and maybe not setting records or not getting ranked in such a way that it garners a lot of attention. Are, are U.S. overclockers less competitive in a way? I don't think so. Um, part of the market here in the United States is that people buy tablets and not necessarily PCs to build in terms of gaming and whatnot. So when you build your own PC, you kind of want to push it, like what you had mentioned earlier. But if you buy a Dell or an Alienware, you have this warranty that you have to worry about for the first couple of years. So you don't break it open. And I think that is where a lot of the mentality in the U.S. is keeping you from overclocking and tweaking your system and adding a video card to get better gaming performance. That is an interesting point I bring up. Um, I want to I want to mention though that um, if we look at the, the PC sh shipments, as you mentioned, like the Dell XPS, those are going down uh, quite a lot. So if you look at the global PC market, the decline is about seven percent uh, year over year. But if we look at the global shipments for DIY motherboards, that actually goes up a little bit. And therefore, I don't know if the sales of tablets would be affecting the overclocking that much. Well, you make a good point there. We also have to look at the regions and where those motherboards are being sold. At the last Computex, I discovered that the largest markets for all of the DIY motherboard manufacturers is China and all the developing regions. You know, we got Middle East, we got Iran, Iraq, Israel, and all of China and Southeast Asia. That is a very large market for them, and they actively sell there. That was where Foxconn made all of their money. That is a region that is probably 15 years of what the U.S. looked like 15 years ago. You know, that's things migrate, and it all seems to be based off of the U.S. timeline. So that is why they are making a lot of money. I mean, there's a billion people in China, right? Well, all those people are building PCs. They don't have OEMs that actually build stuff. I know HP sells there, but they probably don't sell very well because they're more expensive. Yeah, that is a very fair point. Uh, I think the... Um the exact rate would be 50% sales and revenue in China alone right. for uh, for all that goes for all the motherboard manufacturers. Yeah, that's one reason why Asus added gold to their mainstream boards. You know, China loves gold. I don't, I don't know why, but they do. China loves gold, but I'm not sure if they like uh, mustard brown. It, that is a very good point. The mustard brown. It, 
never really came off as gold. To to go back to the to the, the question on why Americans are not more present in, for example, the Extreme Overclockers League, um, I think the decline in uh, the DIY market in the U.S., assuming that is correct, that should also not be a, 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 an argument for for why they're not present at the top of the rankings, because after all, the U.S. community is the largest on HWPod. In fact, uh, the active community from the U.S. doubled compared to last year. That's actually a really impressive number. Would you say that there was a, a certain benchmark that maybe marked that? We um, well, the only new benchmark that we launched in um, in 2013 was the XT one in cooperation with Intel. Right. And since Intel is U.S. based, that might actually have played a role in it. Yeah. And it's one of those benchmarks that you can install and run and run it over and over again. Whereas if you're running SuperPy, it it's single core, single thread. And it has kind of a limited amount of impact on over system performance overall. And then if you get into the future market benchmarks, those are mostly some of the older ones are full system because they're DirectX nine, but the newer ones like uh, 3D Mark eleven and Firestrike, those are DirectX eleven based benchmarks, and that's really testing the video card performance. And we've mentioned this before on previous podcast episodes. When you get XTU, you can kind of test the full system. And that's something that just about anybody can run. You can run that on a, an all-in-one PC. You don't necessarily have to have a, a home-built computer or something from CyberPower PC or Origin. That's true. Um, XTU runs on a very specific uh, amount of chipset, though. So it won't run on any H87 or something like that. It has to be the overclockable uh, chipsets. Judging by the amount of benchmark results that have been submitted since, uh, since June when it launched together with Haswell, I think we've now over 25,000 benchmark results. And the interesting part of it is that um, it seems that it also helps trying in a lot of new members, a lot of new people that are um, seemingly interested in overclocking and want to actually do it as well. The what, For me, when I looked at XTU when it first came out, I was like, well, it's just one more benchmark that you can get points on. And I was looking at a lot of the high-end, you know, in the Extreme OC that were submitting XTU scores, Everybody was getting global points. So I felt that people that had already had an account that were running next to you, they were doing this so that they could just get a higher ranking. And, you know, looking at my scores, I think I dropped like five points because of that. And it's just because I never submitted an next to you score. I have the hardware for it. I just never bothered to try and do it. Yeah, but the new members don't sign up for the points. So yeah. that, that is the interesting uh, aspect for us. If we look at um, Q4, we have the highest amount of new registrants in Q4 ever. We broke it by, yeah, we broke our record by a couple, couple thousand. That's actually pretty impressive. So hopefully that will continue in 2014 and maybe we'll have a few more benchmarks. I think Catzilla was on the, the chopping block to get some global points and whatnot. And you have a lot of benchmarks that are in the system, but they may not get points. That's where a casual overclocker can start running all those benchmarks. And eventually, if they do get global points, you will move up in the ranking. You'll be ahead of everybody else. And that's kind of one of those, uh, I should say it's a competitive advantage that you're just kind of hedging your points. The, we did some analysis on the XTU performance, though. And what we noticed is that people sign up for it and they will run XTU several times. But very few of them actually run other benchmarks than XTU. So what we think is that because XTU is so easy to use and because it combines an overclocking tool with actually a benchmark, um, 
it's very easy for people to get involved with XTU. But then the step to um, other benchmarks where you have to make a screenshot and then include CPUZ windows and get a correct verification, that is still too difficult for people to get involved with. We also have the issue that those benchmarks are very well established on HWBot and they have a lot of submissions. So to be competitive, you have to reach a certain level. Otherwise, you'd be getting credit for submitting a benchmark and maybe 1.1 points or whatever. To get to anything, you know, in the like 10 points or more, you have to start super cooling. And then when that is actually one of those steps that not a lot of people want to take. And that's where if you have a whole mess of video cards, you can do really well in the enthusiast league and get a lot of points and be ranked very well. But if you're just doing CPU or 2D, then you still have to get into the super cooling and actually try to be very competitive. The thing is, though, with um, the people that start out with XTU is that they don't join up, uh, join up for HWBOT because they want to have the points. Um, no one gets involved just because they can score a point on a website. And what I believe is that because the, the tuning utility combines an overclocking, t- uh, an overclocking tool and a benchmark, people that are interested in overclocking and know a little bit about it will download it and just try it out. And I think for HWBot and for the over, entire overclocking community, this is, a, this is a great opportunity to sort of get the people that are interested in overclocking to also start uh, being engaged in the more competitive aspect of it. Right. And the more competitive aspect would be an online versus a live competition, right? Um, yeah, the, the live competition would be the, the furthest step in competitive overclocking. So let's talk a little bit about the MOA and the most recent HyperX OC event and how those were a little bit different. We both had online qualifiers for both of those that were sponsored at HWBot. The MOA was spread out over a multiple regions so that we had overclockers from every region with those qualifiers adding points to allow them to go to the grand final. This year was slightly different from previous years where it was just a single overclocker, whereas before it was a pair of overclockers. And that has a little bit of a different feel when you compare what it is that those overclockers do at the actual event. With the HyperX event, it was still an online qualifier, still one person, but it was limited to just five people. And I want to say since Kingston had also arranged some gaming events, I think they tried to tailor the overclocking event similar to that, and that might be why it was limited also might be why they were all in a single line with a bunch of people watching them. But what was your feeling on that stuff? Um, first of all, I must say that MOA has a very long tradition of, of an overclocking competition. This year it was the sixth edition. And year over year, they're actually making very good events. I think year over year, they're improving. And um, you can tell that the overclocking community awaits every year to participate in these overclocking competitions. It is something that the overclocking community looks forward to every year, and I think that is a that is a great um, that's a great achievement by by MSI. Right, and that's actually the last two years I awaited to attend the MOA. Mostly, it's kind of selfish. I want to be at the event so that I can kind of promote myself and also promote the website. But I think it's actually really fun the competitive aspect of it. And sometimes you get buried in the rules, or you get buried in a strange loophole, or in my case, I just don't spend enough time binning hardware to actually get the best scores, or I may not actually use the right method to overclock a video card. And that's a learning process. I think MOA this year was, was pretty interesting, actually, because it was a it was also not just divided up into regions, but also in classes. But you're right, sometimes um, 
the rules were too difficult. And I think that is just a um, a side effect of evolution. The competition evolves every year and just rules are added every every time. Right. Well, those rules are to combat something that somebody complained about in the previous year. I believe the one overclocker per country really hindered people in the United States, whereas it was really to combat something that had happened in South America the previous year. So whereas I would have said, okay, only one overclocker per country or Providence, that would allow more people from Canada to attend because there's a bunch of Providence there. We got 50 states in the United States. That would allow myself and maybe Gunslinger to attend had we actually qualified. But as it was, I didn't have hardware to compete, so I didn't compete. I just I kind of submitted a score to submit a score, knowing full well that somebody else would go in my place. Let's talk about the HyperX OC event. How was that different than the MOA? Because there was a different feel, and there's a different vibe, and obviously Kingston wanted to exploit their memory. They wanted to put as much emphasis on their memory, so it was all memory-intensive benchmarks. The Kingston event was actually pretty interesting um, because, you know, this year, or actually last year, we've seen uh, two new companies try to do an overclocking event where one company would go for the approach where they invite the top overclockers and make it sort of an an entertainment show or an exhibition show. And Kingston chose for um, having qualifiers, not just uh, catered to the to North America, but global, which why, which I think was a, was a very, very good thing. Um, so you had people all over the world competing, and we had um, in total four countries represented in the HyperX finals. And it's the first time that Kingston did an overclocking event like this, an overclocking competition. And I must say I'm very impressed with the level of professionalism that um, this competition was run. It was um, from the start... It was actually no problems whatsoever. No problems as in compared to previous events like with the MSI event or something like that? Or was it more that they did more planning up front to make sure that some of the loopholes were closed to make sure that the overclockers were there and that they were running the way that they were supposed to? I think they're uh, they're piggybacking on all the other overclocking competitions that have been organized before, right? And at Kingston, we have, um, we have uh, Marmot and... Um, Knidal uh, working for them, and they helped giving the the marketing team um, some tips on how to run these overclocking competitions. Yeah, well, they were getting queued in off of what was happening in the HW Bot forums, so they had a little bit of um, research into it. Really, both of them actually also participated in overclocking competitions. Oh, good. So they had the experience, and then it all sort of came together. And when I talk about problems, I'm I'm talking about specific organizational issues where if you run into an issue, um, you have to discuss it. You have to find a solution for it. And for some reason, with, with Kingston, it always went very smoothly. Well, thank you, Peter, for your time. And I'm glad that you were able to actually visit the Ninjaline Labs in person. I believe this was your first trip to the United States, and I hope you enjoy your stay. And maybe you'll be back next year. Well, thanks for having me, Dennis. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes. If you have questions, drop by the forums or email us at podcast at ninjalane.com. Stay up to date on the latest at NinjaLane by subscribing to our RSS, now available on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter or join us on Facebook. This has been a NinjaLane production, copyright 2013. Thanks for listening.